He never had beginning to end, concise, nice thing he could take lessons out of and wrap up with a pretty bow. He had bits and pieces that he's pulling meaning from. And just as someone doesn't live their entire life in one sitting, we have to break things up and we have to realize that there is there is a new meaning that comes out of not knowing the end from the beginning. The idea that like we are responsible for all evil yes. in the world. If you think of it really logically, like you're not responsible for putting yourself in the gulag, but it's almost better for you as a person for like for your development to look at the world and say like if I just take this all on myself how will I behave like how am I going to start changing in order to prevent things like this from happening to me again or from happening from happening to others again you could say well it's Stalin's fault it's the fault of the secret police and you're you're right you would be right to say that but what would that what would that do to your soul it's better for your soul if you say I'm responsible for this I'm responsible for this and you try to fix your soul Hello again. Today I'll chat with Ali and Emily about a few more chunks of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago. Today's quote of the day is a bit long. It's from Solzhenitsyn's Nobel Lecture. It's long, but I think worth it. I'll be excerpting here a few of my favorite chunks. This is what he says. One day, Dostoevsky threw out the enigmatic remark, quote, beauty will save the world. What sort of statement is that? For a long time, I considered it mere words. How could that be possible? When, in bloodthirsty history, did beauty ever save anyone from anything? Ennobled, uplifted, yes, but whom has it saved? The rest of the lecture is dedicated to posing possible responses to this question. He goes on to say, I believe that world literature has it in its power to help mankind, in these its troubled hours, to see itself as it really is, notwithstanding the indoctrinations of prejudiced peoples and parties. World literature has it in its power to convey condensed experience from one land to another so that we might cease to be split and dazzled, that the different scales of values might be made to agree, and one nation learn correctly and concisely the true history of another with such strength of recognition and painful awareness as it had itself experienced the same, and thus might it be spared from repeating the same cruel mistakes." We shall be told, what can literature possibly do against the ruthless onslaught of open violence? But let us not forget that violence does not live alone and is not capable of living alone. It is necessarily interwoven with falsehood. Between them lies the most intimate, the deepest of natural bonds. Violence finds its only refuge in falsehood, falsehood its only support in violence. Any man who has once acclaimed violence as his method must inexorably choose falsehood as his principle. And the simple step of a simple courageous man is not to partake in falsehood, not to support false actions. But writers and artists can achieve more. They can conquer falsehood. In the struggle with falsehood, art always did win, and it always does win. Openly, irrefutably for everyone. Falsehood can hold out against much in this world, but not against art. And for a discussion about one of the best works of art of the century, Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. Let's go into that chat with me and Ali and Emily.
Allie. Hi. Uh, hi, Allie. Hi. Let's just start with this open-ended question. Why am I having you read this book? It's a very difficult book to read. It's full of horrors and tortures and traumas. And is it worth it? That's the question. Is this worth it? Is it worth reading? And, in, and if so, why specifically and how? I would say absolutely this book is worth reading. I definitely, so I added the class late, as you know, and then signed up for this um, kind of as one of the last options. And I was fully prepared to hate this text. <laughs> I'm, I'm very much, uh, I very much consider myself to be an optimist. I feel like I have my fair share of trials, but I, I try to look at things, you know, in the best way possible. And I just thought, oh, oh boy, we're going to have to be reading. This is going to be heavy. Yeah. This is going to be hard to get through. It's going to be depressing. And I actually loved reading this. And I think to me, that proves that it's really a masterpiece is when you go in thinking you're going to hate it and you're <laughs> loving it because it was horrible circumstantially, but the author does such a good job of pulling so much out of these real experiences and, um, and teaching us, teaching us how to live just as we're talking about in this class. I, I agree. I, I find this book incredibly life-affirming. He, he stares into a kind of abyss of evil and suffering. But actually, when I think about this book and when I read it, when I find myself reading it, I mean, every, every page affirms the reality of evil and suffering and pain, but also the reality of love, endurance, human endurance, power of goodness over evil. It's, I think it is, at the end of the day, very it confirms the hope I have in human goodness rather than demolishing it. Ali, how do you respond to this book? Is it worth reading for you? Um, for me, yeah, I would think so. Kind of along a similar line that like, even though it is focused on so much pain and suffering and just like the worst things that people can do to each other, he's able to find so much beauty within that, that I feel like it kind of reminds us that like life is still worth living, even if you're like trapped in the gulag, like you can still find joy and purpose in yeah. your existence. I think that just the power, even simply the power of telling stories of human suffering is, even if he doesn't spin, I have this theory that all great art is affirmative somehow, that it affirms life. Even if he doesn't put a positive spin on this or extract some kind of positive moral, even just the act of saying, I saw your suffering. It did not go unnoticed. Is inherently affirmative and hopeful. For example, this the bit that our section starts with, where so this is on page one forty nine. It's, it's quite difficult because I'm excerpting from three volumes and not just one. Um, this chapter, what the archipelago stands on, he tells this story of this girl. So um, a bunch of prisoners has escaped, and this girl says, who's still imprisoned. This girl says, at least. She can have a good time out there. Sorry, at least she can have a good time out in freedom for all of us. A jailer overhears this and makes this girl stand, quote, at attention in front of him for the whole day, you know, from 6 p.m. to uh, 11 p.m. and then all night. And she's being uh, mocked and shouted at. She stands there all night. The next day was Sunday. Now I'm going to read this a little bit and then just ask you, like, how you react to... Solzhenitsyn's attempt to tell her story. What is the value of telling her story? That's my question. What is the value of telling her story? This is what Solzhenitsyn says. 
Such a straw blonde, naive, uneducated slip of a girl. She had been imprisoned for some spool of thread. What a dangerous thought you expressed there, little sister, when she said, well, she can at least enjoy freedom. Solzhenitsyn continues, they want to teach you a lesson for the rest of your life. Fire. Fire. We fought the war and we looked into the bonfires to see what kind of a victory it would be. The wind wafted a glowing husk from the bonfire. To that flame and to you, girl, I promise the whole wide world will read about you. I think that in some ways it just kind of like validates people as individuals to remember like them, their stories and remember what they've been through because I think it's really easy to like look at suffering and just kind of make it like a numerical thing, like X many people were imprisoned and like they died or whatever, but to be able to say like this girl did this and like she was forced to stand outside and value her as a person, as a human being has a lot of power in it. Um, it's not, she's not trying to convince us that this was for some greater cause. There's no like positive spin on this suffering. Oh, through this suffering, she learned something important. No, no, no. It's just, it's my job to tell her story. And I love that he, he had every excuse to not say, well, like I'm also in prison. So it's not, I have, I have excuses I could hide behind. He could have said to himself, but no, what does he say to himself? The whole wide world will read about you. <laughs> That's my job. And he did it. It's like he won. He did it. It's a kind of victory. Even in the abyss of uh, imprisonment, it's a kind of victory. I appreciate it. He didn't try to put a positive spin on it. But to me, this this is teaching the world what we already know. We And it, it's highlighting in all of us this feeling that this world punishes the optimist. I mean, the the go-getter, the person that is trying to defy the odds, the world mm. will try to crush their spirit. But by promising that optimist that the world will read about her, we are validating that what she's doing is, yeah. is inherently good. And that anyone that reads this without putting any message at the bottom, without saying any lesson we're supposed to gain from this, we all read this and go... She's the good, she's the good guy. Yeah. <laughs> and he, and the narrator too. Right. Like she, she said, she said something she shouldn't have. She was celebrating freedom and she got punished for it. And he celebrated her celebration of freedom, you know, against all odds. I want to talk next about indoctrination and ideology. In the first podcast about Solzhenitsyn, we, we highlighted this, the fact that if you have I, ideological motives, you can use these to justify small evils and large evils, the largest of all evils. I love this dialogue that he has with this person in the train who is a diehard communist and is so indoctrinated that he can't see the facts. For example, so let me just, I, I'll just read a few snippets of this and then I want you to, to, to help me answer this question. What does this teach us about human nature? What does this teach us about you? What do we learn about our own nature? and how we can all be blinded right so he he's in this train car and he's talking to this communist and he's saying things like this is page 339 okay 338 look over there how many how poverty stricken our villages are straw thatch crooked huts and the communist says well that's an inheritance from an, an inheritance from the tsarist regime and then the narrator says well but we've already had 30 soviet years 
to which the communist says, that's an insignificant period historically. And the narrator says, it's terrible that the collective farmers are starving. The communist says, but have you looked at all their ovens? Et cetera. So the communist has an answer for everything, right? So um, the narrator says, why is there a shortage of bread in so many cities? The communist says, when? Well, right before the war, for example. The communist says, not true. Before the war, in fact, everything had been worked out. So there's always like, uh, look at the fields, the narrator says, like the fields are full of rotting grain. There's an excuse for this. There's an excuse for that. The system is perfect. The ideology is perfect. You know, he's so <laughs> blinded. So why are humans susceptible to this kind of blindness? And how can you and I, we have this in us. How can we not let it be dominant? Any insights here? I think we want the world and the things that we do to this world to be good. I think inherently people want to believe that we're somehow improving the state of the world and that our efforts aren't wasted. And in the purest sense, this this communist saying, basically, that's not how the situation is at all, might be him trying to convince himself as well that right. they're that they're doing what they wanted to accomplish. And I think we see this in politics now, just in general, we have people that are suffering all over the world. And the people that come forward and say, we are suffering, we are suffering. And then someone who has researched it and studied it says, well, actually, I've been reading about this or, well, actually, that's not exactly what's going on. Or in reality, this is, but the point of the matter is someone says they're suffering, they're mm -hmm. suffering. And that's what we need to be focusing on, not trying to convince them that they don't need to be suffering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like these, these impoverished villages, like they, they, 30 years after communists, uh, the, the, the regime started, they're still impoverished. He, he's like, no, they're not. No, they're not. Waving it away. Right. No, they're not. Um, yeah, I think that there's really just a lot of comfort in believing that you're right, even if you're not necessarily right. Yes. Just like, thinking that you found the answer feels really good. Yes. And I think we naturally just want to like defend that. Like if we think we figured it out, we're not going to change. I think like kind of answering what you said later on, like ways to look for this in ourselves and maybe try and like prevent it. Um, I think being willing to recognize failure and be okay with it and like not let it get us down is really helpful. Cause like, yeah. if you're willing to say like, yeah, there are thousands of people starving and the system isn't working. Like what can we do to fix it versus just being like, no, I cannot fail. Like this cannot fail. This is the only way. It is a great comfort to think that you're right. It's a mental and emotional security blanket. And I understand why we do this to some degree, because to say I don't know, to say I am wrong is scary, it takes courage. You know, Socrates, Solzhenitsyn's quote Socrates, know thyself. We talked about this in the other podcast, but um, one of the, Socrates, the Delphic Oracle said to Socrates, you are the wisest man alive. Socrates was very confused about this. I am? No, I'm not. What could this mean? What could this mean? He finally realized that it's true because he at least knew that he knew nothing. And this made him the wisest of all men. So this is not a comfortable mental position to be in, to admit constantly to ourselves, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But this mantra, if we can, if we can embrace this mantra, we can prevent so much blindness, you know, it says 
this this communist was like, <laughs> the narrative says, well, what are you doing here? If communism is perfect, why were you arrested? Well, I was jailed by mistake. You know, they'll still sort things out and release me immediately. Total faith in the system. This is proof to me that there there were there have always been alternative facts. You know, early in the Trump presidency, it's like, well, alternative facts, people. And when we're locked in these bubbles, these we talked about this too, um, social media information bubbles. But this has always been true about human nature. Humans only see what they want to see, and they're only going to seek out information that confirms what they already think is true. So my two takeaways from this are admit that you don't know and go out of your way to read things and talk to people and befriend uh, opposite aisle of the political spectrum things and people. That was horribly phrased. You know what I'm trying to say, though. Don't silo yourself is one of my takeaways. I think this also highlights to me that just kind of going off of what you've been saying is that man looks back and uses that confirmation bias to justify things, to validate ourselves, and is very uncomfortable with looking forward. Whereas God asks us to look forward and trust and not look yeah. back. And and the line on the page just before, just before this dialogue we've been reading that says, how could it be anything but hard? It was more than the human heart could bear to fall beneath the beloved acts than to have to justify its wisdom. So you're seeing you know, something happened, we have to justify it. That's the human part. And then it goes on and says, but that is the price a man pays for entrusting his God-given soul to human dogma. We are divine beings. Where we feel this dissonance is when we as humans think we have to look back, we have to justify everything that's happening. And God's saying, people are suffering. Just look ahead, just keep going and try to help. This is religion. I want to take this uh, discussion in a religious direction here in a minute. But when God says, my ways are higher than thy ways, or however it is that he phrases it, he's teaching us that we don't always, he's teaching us what Socrates knew. We don't have to know everything. The homo sapien brain is great because it's like info info, um, gathering to the max. You know, I want to know, I want to know. And this is partly what has made our species the prime species on the planet. But it comes with, this inability to shut off, you know, we, we have to shut that mode off and say, well, there comes a limit. I don't know. I don't know. And embrace that. Okay. Um, yes. The soul and God. Solzhenitsyn begins to talk a lot about the soul and God in these chapters, these later chapters about the ascent prison can either corrupt you. I mean, he, he's not so reductive, but he observes people in the labor camps becoming morally corrupted and deciding to give in to this or that pressure and become, yeah, just as morally debased as the people who are imprisoning them, cutting moral corners. You know what I mean? And then he describes people in this chapter called The Ascent in which prison kind of purifies them. And the soul, prison is what helps their soul to kind of rise to a higher level. This is why the chapter is called The Ascent. And there's this wonderful bit where he's talking to this doctor, Dr. Kornfeld. And Dr. Kornfeld, see if I can find this quickly, says a quite provocative thing to Solzhenitsyn. This is on page 612 of that ascent chapter. Well, on the top of 612, it's easy to get embittered and resentful because you have been imprisoned for nothing. Quote, you have been imprisoned for nothing. You have nothing to repent of before the state and its laws. It's very easy to think that. Because it's, it's true. That's why it's easy to think, because it's true. I was literally arrested for nothing. 
therefore what do I have to repent of? Dr. Kornfeld on the bottom says this, and on the whole, do you know, I have become convinced that there is no punishment that comes to us in this life on earth, which is undeserved. Superficially, it can have nothing to do with what we are guilty of in actual fact. But if you go over your life with a fine-tooth comb and ponder it deeply, you will always be able to hunt down that transgression of yours for which you have now received this blow. I just wanted your reactions to this. Slightly counterintuitive to, and contradicts things that we've talked about earlier in the class. I love that moment in the death of Ivan Ilyich when his inner voice tells him, there's no reason for your suffering right now. There's no reason. And this is true. I mean, there, people who get cancer don't get cancer for any particular moral reason. They don't get cancer because they deserve cancer. I mean, so I don't want to start saying that every bad thing that happens to you in your life is your own fault. But there is wisdom here, is there not? What are we learning here? Well, I hate to say this because you just said there is wisdom in this, but my reaction was, what the heck is this guy talking about? Well, it's, no, I'll pause, I want you to keep going, but just to pause you, <laughs> that is the reaction that we all have when we read this, because it, it is very counterintuitive to say, I'm here and I, I'm somehow responsible for being here. It's not I wisdom mean, that is immediately evident. He's sitting there talking to this prisoner that is in this camp, lying on this bed after having a surgery that probably wasn't the best medically and saying, basically, this is all because of something you did yeah, or this is all for a reason. And I think that's how I read it at first was that um, if we're deserving of something, it's, it's because of something we did in our lives. And because he does say you'll be able to hunt down that transgression of yours for which you have, um, you have now received this blow. And I sat there thinking, no, right. no, that's not true. It can't be true. And I think on further study of it, I thought, cause it goes on and, and to me, the next page, six thirteen, answers gospel questions that so many people have of that, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to such terrible people? To me, I yeah. just, and, and just basically saying, why are these guards prospering, these torturers? Why does not fate punish them? Why do they prosper? And the only solution to this would be that the meaning of earthly existence lies not as we have grown used to thinking and prospering, but in the development of the soul. Yeah. And then at the end of that, that, the punishment is inflicted on those whose development holds out hope. These things that come to us are for our good. And are we not deserving of that refinement? Yeah. And, and that's where it started to shift for me that bad in the moment means good for me eternally. So it fulfills it somehow. And he goes on to say, um, in the seventh year of my imprisonment, I had gone over. So at first he's as confused by Dr. Kornfeld's statement as you. He's like, really? What? But that, but so this is the bottom of 613, but there was something in Kornfeld's last words that touched a sensitive chord and that I accept quite completely for myself. And many will accept the same for themselves. In the seventh year of my imprisonment, I had gone over and re-examined my life quite enough and had come to understand why everything had happened to me, both prison and as an additional piece of ballast, my malignant tumor. So he actually does get cancer, Solzhenitsyn does. And I would not have murmured even if all that punishment had been considered inadequate. So. It's like, you know, when you're in a spat with a a friend or a family member 
And there's like a second and a half. This has happened to you. I'm sure it's happened to you. It's happened to me a lot. There's about a second and a half in the middle of this spat or thinking about it later in which in the back of your mind, a door opens and behind that door is a realization. Oh, they have a point. You immediately slam that door closed. Don't you? You only allow that door to open for about a second and a half. And then you close, you slam it closed and you bury it. You pretend you didn't hear that voice saying, Oh, I am slightly in the wrong here. Despite all of the justification that you rightly have to pursue your points or whatever, you think, oh no, that I did do something in a way that I shouldn't have. None of us are who we could have, who we could become. We are all still imperfect and fallen. And we talked in the earlier podcast about how they Solzhenitsyn at the beginning of this reading says we deserved what happened to us. Remember this little footnote? We didn't love freedom enough because we let all of these white lies pile up and build this this labor camp system, this gulag archipelago. What if instead of letting those white lies pass, we hadn't? What if we hadn't let those white lies pass and then more and then more and then more? You know, this is kind of my fault and it's your fault and it's his fault and it's her fault, right? How did we get into this mess? We're slightly broken. That's how I take it. So he goes through his life with a fine-tooth comb and says, it's not the state that is at fault. It's not Stalin's fault that I'm here. It's kind of mine because I wasn't the, the human that I could have been. I could have been more courageous. I could have been more noble. I could have been braver. I could have been more outspoken. You know, I could have been more perfect. Um, so he's looking, he's doing what Christ tells us to do, looking for the, the, the beams in his own eye. Um, yeah, I think I also kind of just reacted at first to like push it away or I just didn't really totally believe it, but I don't know. I think the way that I understand it, it kind of reminds me of, I am blanking on the name, but we read it like just before the death of Ivan Ilyich. Oh, the brothers Karamazov. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The, 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 uh, grand inquisitor. Yes. Um, and kind of one of the things that we talked about a little bit was the idea that like we are responsible for all evil in the world. And I think that this reminds me of that a lot, kind of the idea that like, um, if you think of it really logically, like you're not responsible for putting yourself in the gulag, but it's almost better for you as a person for like, for your development to look at the world and say like, if I just take this all on myself, how will I behave? Like, how am I going to start changing in order to prevent things like this from happening to me again or from happening from happening to others again? I think you phrased it wonderfully. It's better for you. You could say, well, it's Stalin's fault. It's the fault of the secret police. And you're, you're right. You would be right to say that. But what would that, what would that do to your soul? It's better for your soul if you say, this is, I'm responsible for this. I'm responsible for this. And you try to fix your soul, you know, and you look at you and you don't blame anyone else and you don't cast stones. So that's Solzhenitsyn's argument. That's exactly his argument. Not that the government isn't at fault because it certainly is not that there are grander systems here to which he is a victim because he certainly is, but to focus on the way in which some external force has victimized him and how pure and innocent he is. That's that attitude is bad for his soul better for him to think, where are my moral tumors? Which is why he says on page 615 this, 
in my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good and I was well. So he goes through his, his life with a fine tooth comb and he, he has realizations that little door in the back of his brain. Oh, I, I was a very small part of the problem. We were all one grain of sand of this problem that turned into a mountain, a mountainous problem. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good. And I was well supplied with systematic arguments. And it was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil, like Camus' rats. So the rats are hiding in your heart. They will surface that if you let them. How do you react to this uh, good and evil business here? The battle of this earth is in every situation, which part are you going to let prevail? Yeah. And it's not that you can completely get rid of the natural man. It's that we're bridling those things. Is it strange to you that he says, bless you, prison? After this, he realizes that prison saved his soul. And he says, quote, bless you, prison. Is the implication there that we should all like make our lives full of more suffering? Like, oh, this is the way to purify my soul. So I should start whipping myself or starving myself or <laughs> bless you, prison? I think how can that, we do this? How can we do this outside of prison? I think that he's really the only person who like would be able. I think that we can't really judge him for saying bless you prison because we have no, I like we've never come close to that experience. And so right. like, he like has like a very strong right to be able to look back right. and say like, this was valuable for me. And I don't know. I feel like I have seen this in my own life. Like when I go through really hard things, like years later, looking back, I'll be like, right. that was really good for me. Like, I'm very grateful that that happened. Yeah. And so I don't think that he um, is arguing we should like look for ways to punish ourselves or to create more suffering in our own lives. But right. I just love in this paragraph, he says, it was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. We need to be willing to like let ourselves yep. come to places where we can change. And then like when we notice that change, grab onto it and not fight it. Yeah. So if we have illness, I mean, there are certain things that have happened to me and you know, my parents dying. Um, my mom died when I was 18. I've said before, it was too young for a parent to die. And she was, you know, in her forties, was too young. Of course I wouldn't, if I could go back in time, I wouldn't and had the power to prevent that, I would prevent it. It's, so it's not like I'm saying I'm glad it happened, but I can understand him when he says, bless you prison, because it, that trial came with certain blessings, you know, came with certain, it taught me things that I, I wouldn't have learned otherwise, and that I really value. But this is a choice. He could have sat there on that rotting prison straw and chosen to become embittered and say, I have nothing to learn. This is not my fault. <laughs> it's all that stupid Stalin. I can't wait to exact revenge on him and become a kind of Madame Defarge character. How to not become Madame Defarge? Say, this is my fault. You know? Uh, does this mean that 
if it's if it's better for our souls to say this is my fault how do we fix broken governments or corrupt systems because governments often get corrupt and systems are often broken and we want to point to them and say this is broken right what it, what is the implication here if solzhenitsyn was here and we asked him the following question how would he answer how do you fix governments or systems how do we fix systems what would he answer i think he would argue that in order for these massive problems these problems that are on such a large scale to be fixed there needs to be a large scale responsibility taken that every person needs to say yeah. this is part my fault that right. if every like as you said everyone's this grain of sand into this huge mountain of a problem if every grain of sand says i'm going to change then the mountain could change but if just a handful it doesn't change anything and and the problem yeah. continues there is a power that comes from after you've conquered something looking back taking the lesson and applying it as you're going forward. Right. Absolutely. I love what you say about there needs to be mass individual responsibility taking, right? If the if the problem is widespread, the responsibility taking needs to be widespread. Just think about what you see when you read the news. Think about what you see when you go onto Twitter, or Facebook, or Instagram. You know, this is going to make me sound like I'm hating the human race, but it's these i think it's these media platforms that bring bring out the evil half of us and not sufficiently they don't sufficiently bring out the good half usually what you see on these systems and platforms and media is people pointing fingers there's a problem over there and there's another one over there and this other article that thing over there is broken that person over there is to blame imagine if instead of that everyone on twitter said turned their finger around and pointed it at themselves and said i am slightly flawed in this way and i made this mistake and i am slightly broken man i mean <laughs> wouldn't life get instantly better you know if we all said oh yeah i'm i'm contributing to the problem i'm contributing to the problem so i'll stop that would be so much better <laughs> how do we do this how do we do this i don't know uh, we read social needs and more maybe maybe that's how we do it this takes me right to the bit, the little tiny bit before chapter 11. I guess it ends chapter 12, right? It's like, how, do, how, do we, how does the gulag come to an end? What is the page I'm looking for? So go to page 248. I'll just read this little section and then get your guys' take on it. Um, what does what this small act of rebellion teach us about how to solve this problem? The problem of government-wide, system-wide corruption which is a problem we've seen in reading Lolita and Tehran, in The Tale of Two Cities, in many books. Two warders came into a hut after work and casually told a man, get ready and come with us. The prisoner looked around at the other lads and said, I'm not going. In fact, this simple everyday situation, a snatch, an arrest, which we had never resisted, which we were used to accepting fatalistically, held another possibility, that of saying, I'm not going. Our liberated heads understood that now. The warders pounced on him. What do you mean not going? I'm just not going, the Zek answered firmly. I'm all right where I am. There were shouts from all around. 
Where's he supposed to go? What's he got to go for? These are the other prisoners chiming in. We won't let you take him. We won't let you go away. And the wolves understood that we were not the sheep we used to be. That if they wanted to grab one of us now, they would have to use trickery or do it at the guardhouse or send a whole detail to take one prisoner. With a crowd around, they could never take him. So how there's an implication here that we could solve the problem of individual or mass tyranny by doing what? By acting how? I think it's pretty much just like standing up for yourself, if you want to say it really simply, right? Just like saying, I'm not going, I'm not going to move. Um, yep. Yeah. And being brave enough to do that. And of course, in our we're not in prison camps. So what does this look like in our lives? It might mean saying, no, I'm not going to participate in this untruth. I'm not going to nod my head and smile when someone else is lying. I myself, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going. You're going down, you're telling a story about the world that isn't true and that is ideologically driven, whether that's coming from the right or from the left. I'm not going. You know, I think we have the opportunity to say this. Emily, what would you add? I think we talk a lot about being the one to stand on our own, being the one to stand out, being the one to rise above the evil. And the reality is being the one doesn't carry as much power in these political movements and in some of these global issues, if there's no one else that steps up and stands with the one. I I think there is power that comes in being the one to start something, but I think we also should focus on don't just be the one to stand up, but look around you, see who's trying to be the one that's different and then stand with them because the only way that they can get enough power in this world is if we, if, is if there's enough people standing with them to change these things and to, to enact real change. I like that answer a lot. We talk in the first podcast about, because in the first chapters of this, the arrest chapter, he's he asked the question, why didn't we resist arrest? Uh, why didn't anyone say, no, I'm not going? And we talked about the problem. This is a problem. No one wants to be the first to stick their neck out. And here someone finally does. Someone finally is brave enough to say, no, you're probably going to kill me for this, but no, I'm not going. And instantly, what is the reaction? It cracks the ice. and everyone else around this person is given an example to follow. Yeah. Don't take him. Where does he have to go? Why are you taking him? We won't let you take him. You know, so not all of us are brave enough to be that first person. Maybe some of us are, and maybe some of us, we should all aspire to be, of course. And maybe some of us could become that brave one day. Maybe not all of us have that kind of courage, but certainly I think we could aspire to have the courage of the secondary people who immediately when they say someone being when they see someone being brave add our support to that bravery and say yes you don't go you know i also won't go and i won't let them take you and i learned from this that all it takes is one person all it takes is one person and i learned from this that 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 is all it takes it sounds like i'm repeating myself but this is proof isn't it that solzhenitsyn is right it's it's your it's it's our fault it's solzhenitsyn's fault that this happened Because he didn't say, no, I'm not going, when he should have said, no, I'm not going. So the solution is to say, I'm going to fix this by stopping the lies and by standing up for myself. Very quickly, before we wrap up here, aren't these two afterwards extremely heartbreaking and beautiful? 
This is afterward number one. As soon as I began the book, I thought of abandoning it. I could not make up my mind. Should I or should I not be writing such a book by myself? And would I have the stamina for it? But when, in addition to what I had collected, prisoners' letters converged on me from all over the country, I realized that since all of this had been given to me, I had a duty. You know, and then he says, I have to stop the book, but God bless the work, you know. There will never be enough room in this book to put all the stories in that I want to put it in. So this book is kind of ongoing and will never be quite definitive. What does this teach you about the power of the human soul? Why is this life affirming? Why are these two little afterwards so immensely life affirming? I think it's just really powerful to, I don't know, there's just so much power in sharing truth, I guess. Or like, yeah. I'm not exactly sure how to explain it, but it like kind of reminds me of the question we asked earlier about him promising to tell that girl's story that like there's exactly. so much beauty in just telling what happened and not hiding it. Power and telling the truth. You're exactly right. It's like truth, <laughs> truth shall set you free. You know, this is, this, this is wisdom. This is wisdom. To me, this is life affirming because um, he never had the full book in front of him. I think that's important. I yeah. think to me that's life affirming because it says he never had beginning to end concise, nice thing. He could take lessons out of yeah. and wrap up with a pretty bow. He had bits and pieces that he's pulling meaning from. And just as, as someone wouldn't sit down to read this entire work at once. And just as someone doesn't live their entire life in one sitting, we, we have to break things up and we have to realize that there is, there is a new meaning that comes out of not knowing the end from the beginning. Yeah. And, and to me, the life affirming part is that it just kind of, he's touching on the eternal perspective here in my mind that, by never having the book fully in front of him, he 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 still has the purpose of wanting to write it clearly. Um, but it, it's not. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but no, but you you point. <laughs> I totally do. You're absolutely right. This will be the last thing I say. Um, it reminds me of Virginia Woolf. You know, we are so lucky. You and I are so lucky to live in a comfortable world with access to technology and the internet. Um, he didn't have any of those comforts. The world didn't want him to write this book. It was an illegal thing for him to be doing. So he, he, it wasn't safe for him to have the whole book in front of him. He could have said, how am I, how am I supposed to write this book and, and not written it? It's absolutely true to say that this book changed the world in direct ways. I mean, it, it was a major reason why the Soviet Union collapsed, finally. A major reason. Nobody really knew fully the evils of the gulag system until he exposed them. It literally changed the world. He could have said, it's not my job to change the world. It's too hard. But no, look at the word he uses. He had a duty. One person can do it. It might be easy for us to read Virginia Woolf and think, well, you know, it's too lofty. It's too ambitious. It's too, that's not me. But it is. You have that potential. You know, if you tell the truth, are confident, courageous, ambitious, and you work hard, you don't let obstacles get in your way, you can do this.
this is my ending motivational speech. <laughs> um, thank you both for a great, great chat. I had a great time. I'm sure that the, your classmates will really uh, benefit from it and enjoy it. Perfect. Thank you both. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. I hope you enjoyed that chat. Up next, we will conclude the course with a conversation about Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Gatto, which is very strange, but which nonetheless I hope you really enjoy. Mm-hmm.